Hello, this is Ray Brooks. Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L-O-U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm Dee Trufar. Hey there, folks, this is Don Flynn of the American Songster, slapping the dap with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. Don Fleming, the American songster of the legendary Carolina Chocolate Drops, has made a career preserving traditional American folk songs and its history as a practitioner and folklorist. He's covered the gamut of traditional musics from blues to jug bands. Today, He's delved deep into a part of American history and African-American traditions that many are not familiar with. His new project on Smithsonian Folkway Records is a journey through the life and heritage of the black cowboy. In this new project, Don explores the history of the American West with a collection of African-American cowboy songs and the stories that accompany the tunes. On this episode, Dom goes into detail of how a visit with family 10 years ago landed him at a gift shop around the Petrified Forest, where he came across a book called The Negro Cowboys. Probably no coincidence. Dom shares with us what transpired from this book purchase and how the journey of producing the Black Cowboys album brings him full circle of his own family heritage. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. I was born and raised there, and I went to college in at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is in Northern Arizona, and that's also where my father's from. And so uh, compared to, like, the desert, like a lot of people would think with Arizona, which is like how Phoenix and Tucson, which is south of there, is um, Flagstaff is, is more of a mountain town with Douglas firs uh, spread out everywhere, and there's a lot of... Um, there's a sawmill industry that used to be very prevalent in Flagstaff. Not so much now, but uh, way back in the day when my dad was growing up, he'd tell me about how his father was a sawmill worker. And so uh, so my grandpa was a sawmill worker for six days a week, and then he was a preacher on Sunday, Church of God in Christ. And uh, after he left um, East Texas to join uh, the Army in the Second World War, he became a preacher. He was ordained in the Church of God in Christ. And then he followed his brother to do sawmill work over in Flagstaff. And so he settled down there. And then my uh, grandmother, she came over from uh, a little country hamlet outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. And she traveled with her family over to Flagstaff uh, trying to find work. And so she worked as a domestic for a while and then uh, she was the the main uh, the main sister over at the church with my grandfather, and so you know my dad was a big fan of cowboy music and movies. Uh, just being from a small town, he he was given access to you know they had just one radio station, so he listened to everything: the pop music, the R and B station, and the blues, as well as country music. And so he had a great appreciation for that part of the musical landscape of the United States. So he, he also passed that to me. And uh, when I started reading this book, The Negro Cowboys, one of the main things it talks about is that 
about, I guess, 5,000, uh, which is about maybe about one-fourth of the cowboys who helped settle the West were African-American cowboys. And uh, I thought that was pretty poignant because I hadn't seen a lot of imagery of black cowboys in popular culture. Yeah, they pop up here and there. Um, you know, probably the mo- best, the best known cowboy hero that's a, that's a black man is a Cleavon, Cleavon Little in Blazing Saddles. But uh, you know, but there's a couple of movies like Bucking the Preacher with Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. Uh, Mario Van Peebles did the movie Posse years ago. Uh, I was familiar with the uh, Herb Jeffries and his Browns Buckaroo movies. So I was. I knew there were a couple of precedents to the idea of black cowboys out there, but to hear that they were uh, a bigger influence on the structure of how the West was, was won, I thought that was a very poignant subject. So I started just casually researching about black cowboys, and then as I studied deeper into it, I came across an album called Black Texicans that Rounder Records put out. And it featured uh, recordings from the John Lomax collection. And that was one of the main parts of his gathering of cowboy songs was he was studying the Anglo-American ballad tradition, but he had this whole other part of his research that was about black cowboys and learning songs from the black cowboys as well. And of course, you know, his his, uh, research after doing his cowboy book, Cowboy Ballads and Frontier Songs, um, you know, to know that Black Cowboys were a part of it as a natural extension into the work that he did later into uh, African-American folk song. So those two stories kind of really excited me to just kind of uh, put into perspective some of my own upbringing, being someone from the Southwest of uh, African-American and Mexican-American descent. It got me thinking about how crucial that uh, that that piece of American culture is, but at the same time is very underrepresented in a broad scope. I mean, anybody who's interested in anything that has to do with cowboys, they see a picture of of uh, Deadwood Dick, whose name was Nat Love. You see a picture of this guy, all of a sudden it it tells you a whole different story about Western culture was and is, because it's still a very multifaceted culture. You know, I. I never thought about it until I really started delving into this particular project. But, uh, you know, I grew up with, you know, white and black and Mexican and Native American. We're all in the same type of scope. You know, you'd see folks all the time. And even white, you know, was uh, white is multifaceted out West, too. You know, you have a lot of different types of Europeans and even black kind of becomes more diverse as you go out west too you know you have you have a uh, middle class and you have lower class you have folks from the country you have folks who were born out west you have africans of different different uh, parts of the the continent and the caribbean and and uh, people have always moved out west uh, so it's very transient in some sort of ways so uh, as i started delving into it i wanted to get a project together that was going to showcase a sense of the diversity of all of that in the context and the focal point of Black Cowboy. That's what I did on this record.
focused on the the Reconstruction era going all the way into the early 1960s. One of the things that I found very interesting, and I found other stories of black cowboys that talked about this, was that Nat Love became a Pullman porter on the railroad line after he was a cowboy, after the work started kind of fizzling out for cowboys. For me, when I think of Pullman porters, I think of A. Philip Randolph, and I think of uh, I think of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Cars, and I think of the role that Pullman porters played in all of these different segregated black sections of town and how they delivered the news through the newspapers, the records, and also later on they helped people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. create the bus boycotts by their good standing that they had and their knowledge of all the different places that uh, the civil rights movement could work to try to get the most effective message out there to all the different communities. And so to me, it then made the cowboy story a lot more diverse and, and also very modern because I felt like, you know, I had the what and I had the who, but the why kept eluding me. As I started delving deeper, you know, black cowboys goes back. If you really want to reach back into it, it goes back to the Louisiana purchase as Lewis and Clark brought their, their manservant slave, uh, his name was York, and he traveled with them as they surveyed the land. So that was that's a part of it. And it even goes back farther to people like Estefanico, who was the first African on the North American continent, who was with the Spanish. Also, Christopher Columbus, he traveled with black ranchers when he established Hispaniola, which is now like uh, the Dominican Republic and um, and like Haiti and and those parts of the Caribbean, he brought black ranchers from Africa with him. So the the story goes back all the way to the very beginning of the birth of the New World, and then it continues forward into the present. I just saw a great article talking about some young guys in Compton that are wanting to keep on the cultural history that their fathers and grandfathers had with them out in Compton. The story of black cowboys, it reaches all the way back to the very beginning of North American culture, and it goes all the way into the present. And I recently saw an article about uh, some young guys in Compton that wanted to keep on the culture from their fathers and grandfathers, and they're riding horses and they're wanting to go back to ranching. And, you know, when you start thinking about the Great Migration, most of the time we think of the Deep South going into the North and the Midwest, like going from... Alabama, Mississippi, and also Georgia, going up into Chicago and Milwaukee, and then also, of course, uh, you know, the northeastern culture of uh, New York City. But there's another part of the Great Migration where it, it goes from Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas, moving out west, going all the way out to Los Angeles. Again, that's something that I knew as someone that grew up in the Southwest, but I was, I saw that the representation wasn't as prominent. It wasn't that it wasn't there, but it just wasn't as prominent as as other narratives that have been placed into the the story of uh, how people think about uh, Black culture. Well, I decided to take those three ideas. There was the new book and then the subsequent books I found afterward that spoke of Black cowboys. I decided to take that aspect. I took the folkloric aspect that people like John Lomax took. And then I found out about a fellow named Jack Thorpe who published the very first book on cowboy songs a few years before Lomax. And I found that he had a story about meeting 
some black cowboys on the range. And that ultimately led him to create the very first book on cowboy songs. So the song material in the folkloric sense has black cowboys in it. So I decided to bring that element together. And then the last bit was bringing this idea of the Western migration. You spoke a little bit ago about Oklahoma and the different Midwestern states that were the Indian Territory and the the very uh, prominent Black culture that grew out of the Reconstruction era and going into the early parts of the 20th century. And of course, we have to think about places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, where there was Black Wall Street, and then that was ultimately destroyed by race riots. And to think about this sort of earlier culture where you have a you have the stories of black people becoming prominent citizens and being able to build up and be able to build uh, their own lives and, and uh, structures and um, being able to build their own uh, their own businesses in ways that I think now in the 21st century, I think these are very powerful stories that I think people need to know. I'm going back to Texas, live on easy street. Ooh, what the matter now? You know, one of my favorite ones is the song Goodbye Old Paint. And uh, that ended up being a real cornerstone for the whole record. Because it, it kind of tells you a lot about why we don't hear about black cowboys as much on the, uh, the popular level. Because uh, Goodbye Old Paint was recorded for the Library of Congress. John Lomax recorded it. And his informant who sang it was a, a white fiddler and singer by the name of Jess Morris. And Jess Morris interviews on his field recording and talks about how he learned it from an ex-slave who worked for his father on the ranch, a guy by the name of Charlie Willis. And when you get deeper into it too, you find out that he learned to play the fiddle from a di another black cowhand by the name of James Neely. So you have these two different black cowboys that show up in this fellow's story. And uh, he then became a classical violinist, but he decided he didn't want to do classical music and became a cowboy fiddler. Uh, strictly and he put together the arrangement of goodbye old paint from the skills he had learned from these two different black cow hands so to me that's a big piece of the story um home on the range is another one that john lomax picked up from a black cook on the range and um uh, this fellow sang a certain variant for lomax on his cylinder recorder and lomax then had it transcribed later on for his book and so that transcription became the home on the range that we all know and love today. So those were like two big cornerstones of, of actual black cowboy songs that influenced. Um, 
then I really wanted to do soundscapes, you know, uh, of course, being a big fan of the blues, the East Texas blues and the songsters that came out of that uh, early era in the 20s, even leading up to the 40s. And I, I do a song uh, in the style of Lightning Hopkins and people like Mance Lipscomb, Lightning Hopkins, Lead Belly, Henry Ragtime, Texas Thomas. All these guys have cowboy songs within their full repertoires. And I wanted to bring that into focus. So I included two songs from Henry Thomas, Texas Easy Street and Charmin' Betsy. And then I also included Poor Howard's Dead and Gone from Lead Belly. I could have used the song When I Was a Cowboy, but I felt like that was one too easy. And then the, the second thing was I, I have a interview with Alan Lomax talking to Lead Belly about Poor Howard. And Lead Billy said that for Poor Howard, it was the very first song sung by the first Negro fiddler freed from slavery. And I thought that that was such a powerful notion behind that song, that it, it held this sort of history. So I felt like the idea of migration would be really exemplified by this particular song. So I used Poor Howard. I ended up reading about an, an excellent dynamic figure of the West, a fellow named Bass Reeves who was the first deputy U.S. Marshal of the United States of America, who was African-American. And uh, he has such a dynamic story that I wanted to write a song about him. And then when I read a little bit of the folklore around him, he's said to be the basis of the character, the Lone Ranger. So I decided to make a song kind of like a Lightning Hopkins boogie uh, called He's a Lone Ranger, just to show some of his free story, because he has this really... Uh, very interesting, I, you know, if he was a superhero, it would be an origin story of how he made his way into becoming a U.S. Marshal. And, you know, this is the thing you find when you start reading about some of these wonderful people who lived way back. I mean, just by the social conditions that they were working, you had to be the best. And you find that many of these fellows who were ex-slaves, they, they came out swinging. They said, I've got the freedom. I'm going to use it for everything I've got. And so a lot of times when you read about black cowboys, you find they were the best in their region or they were the most respected in their community. And a lot of them just um, in spite of the discrimination, most of them kept their heads down and just said, I'm just going to go to work and didn't try to get too caught up. And so that was that's something that you find again and again in a lot of these stories, which again is, is the reason why you probably don't hear a lot about them because a lot of them weren't necessarily freedom fighters in the conventional sense that we would think of in modern society, but they were, they were prominent individuals that came in and because of the color of their skin, you couldn't avoid the fact that they were black people. So when they when they did amazing things or they had a great work ethic, you found that most times they found their foot in the door by just being hard workers. And so that was a big piece of, of the story as well. So I wanted to try to show that off, in, uh, particularly in one uh, modern cowboy poem that I presented on the album, one called Old Proc. And Old Proc was, uh, was written by a fellow named Wally McRae. And uh, the, it's basically a poem about how this young man, he is a he, he pretty much just sits at the feet of the masters, all of the best cowboys in his part of the country, and hears them talk about this fellow Joe Proctor. So he builds up this image in his mind of this very prominent cowboy, Joe Proctor. And at the very end of the poem, 
He says that when his calloused hand gripped mine, surprise hit me in waves. Because those old cowboys who cut no slack, they deemed it unimportant that Proc was black. And it wasn't worth the mention that Joe Proctor's folks were slaves. And that kind of tells you another piece of the story where you have occasional references to black cowboys. But you'll find that most times they don't talk about the race. They'll talk about their work ethic and that they were very prominent people in the community, but they won't mention their race. And that was a sort of way to be able to give them the cachet without breaking the social codes of keeping a, a black person as a second-class citizen. Because, of course, you know, it, to the proper context, you know, this is part of why Martin Luther King Jr. and all those guys are fighting to become first-class citizens is that no matter how high up the ladder you got, you were still second class. It's interesting in the way to read about this this part of the history, just because it's, you know, it, it, now in modern modern days, we kind of, we have the notion that if there's wrongdoing, we can say, hey, wait a second, there's wrongdoing here. Let's go and raise our voices about it. You know, back in the, you know, between the 1880s and pretty much up until the mid-1970s, late-1970s, being very vocal about the what's wrong with society was definitely taboo in a way that it could get you into a lot of trouble or your family could get hurt or you know there were implications that that in in modern day society it's just it's not the same as it was back then so it's kind of a it's interesting to read how these guys maneuvered through a, a very tough situation and also it's interesting to see the the understanding that was out there also, because many of the cowboy crews were multiracial. Um, also, the, the the pioneer spirit, as they call it, which is a um, sort of a notion behind the idea that if you were you were there when we started the town, we treat you differently than we would ideologically if you were somebody else. So you have cases like um, there was a fellow named Bones Hooks um, that was that started the first black town in uh, Amarillo, Texas. And he, since he started as a, a prominent pioneer in the Amarillo region of the, the Texas panhandle, you know, he, he could just, well, he could walk through the front doors of anywhere he wanted to go. And he was, he was the liaison for the black community in a way that would seem completely modern by most standards that we would look at today compared to thinking of him being someone that comes from a time of full segregation. And so you find very interesting contradictions to the narrative that's the mainstream narrative within, within Western culture, just because it's all very, it's all sectioned off. Musically, I ended up, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to assume that people knew about cowboy songs. So I, I presented a couple of 
very traditional cowboy songs like uh, Tie Knots in the Devil's Tail, which is um, a great one from Prescott, Arizona, which is which is just a little bit south of Flagstaff. And that's from a fellow Gail Gardner. It's a funny little poem that that eventually became a part of the cowboy song repertoire. And also Little Joe the Wrangler, which is uh, considered the very first cowboy song. It was written by Jack Thorpe and presented in in his book. And to me, when I hear this ballad, I had never really put a racial designation to Little Joe the Wrangler, the character before. But once I started doing this project, I realized the story of a group of cowboys taking in a young a young man who's left home because his stepmother is beating him. Then he goes out and tries to have a big adventure and tries to help out and then dies because of it. I found I had a different emotional response when I thought of it being a young white boy, a black boy, a Native American boy, or a Mexican American boy. And I thought that it was interesting that I didn't even know that I had biases in that sort of way. But when you hear this song, it's ambiguous about what his race might be. But to know that everyone can be involved as, you know, everybody can understand the plight of a a young boy being tragically killed in a stampede. And it really is a a very emotional and very, uh, a very poignant ballad. So I decided to include that one as well. Um, There was a couple of them that, when I first learned them, I didn't think of them as cowboy songs. Like the very first one, Black Woman, which is also known as the Wild Ox Moan. I'd heard Taj Mahal do it. I'd heard Jeff Moldauer do it. And I also heard Vera Ward Hall. It's a field holler. So, it, you know, Sunhouse has very similar type of numbers where it's, you know, Black Woman, come sit on daddy's knee and I got something to tell you, mama. You know, it's a pretty prominent early blues form. And it was one that I hadn't really thought of as a cowboy song, but lyrically it had the narrator is calling his woman to him and saying he's going out to Texas to take his cows out there and that he said that he has to leave. And I thought, wow, this is a great cowboy song. And it also, being a field holler, also tells a lot about black cowboys because that's something that I wanted to make sure that there were African-American folk songs familiar to people, but yet with the slant of it being a black cowboy, it would tell a a little bit more prominent of a story. I had a lot of traditional ones on there, but I decided also to write a few. Cowboy songs fit right between the corn ditties and then what would become the blues. And I feature a little quote from Jack Thorpe from the book, his uh, his autobiography, just to kind of give you a sense of this, because at the time they didn't really have a word for for the blues. He's very specific in that he goes into this cow camp and he sees a bunch of black cowboys singing around the campfire with a banjo, singing about a, a cutting horse named Dodging Joe. And so he wants to get Dodging Joe on paper. And he realizes that this is a unique form of music. And basically... Each of these cowboys, they only knew one verse, so he kind of had to hit up each cowboy for a verse, and he ultimately never found the rest of the verses, but it inspired him. And he's very specific in saying they had this song, but then the rest of them were a bunch of cotton patch songs. And he said, you know, but if you if you want cotton patch songs, if you're into that sort of thing, that's cool, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted the authentic cowboy songs. And so he specifically could have documented these other corn ditties that he sang, but he said, no, I don't want that. And so he says, 
a little bit about the cowboy songs. He says, maybe cowboy singing was an answer to loneliness. Maybe it was just another way of expressing good fellowship. Maybe it was several things. Something happened on the day's work, funny or sad, and somebody with a knack for words made a jingle out of it. And if it was liked, others learned it and passed it on. And to me, it, it's reminiscent of how we would now describe the blues, but he doesn't ever quite get that far to say it was the blues. But to think of people starting to sing songs like the blues out on the range and that ultimately forming into something new as it went along, that to me is very powerful, especially when it comes to cowboy song documentation, knowing that this guy made the first cowboy songbook. Again, the power of, of black folk song. Life of a Cowboy is a culture that's been revered in film, television, and books. For the most part, we usually see a similar story of either an outlaw, lawman, or wrangler trying to survive. Though the black cowboy narrative is something new to many people, Dom wanted to highlight an aspect of African-American history that not only connects to the black cowboy, but hasn't had much exposure. With all this amazing history that accompanies the legacy of the black cowboy and everything that Dom found out that connected him personally to this history, the Black Cowboys Project has a strong significance in the history of African Americans. Be sure to grab a copy of the album and the literature that goes along with it. Also, follow Dom on all his social media platforms. Until the next time, keep on bluesing. Jack Dapper Blues Public Media is a listener-supported platform. For more information on funding, underwriting, and sponsorship opportunities, please email Lamont Jack Pearly at racefilmmusic.com or Denise Pearly at racefilmmusic.com. All rights reserved to Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Preservation Foundation.